This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center for the City University of New York. They're located at 42nd Street, the heart of Times Square, where Broadway, Off-Broadway, and Off-Off-Broadway meet. Where the best of the theatre is goes out to the rest of the country, and where the best of the country comes into New York. These seminars on Working in the Theatre are the one of the all-year-round programs of the American Theatre Wing. Uh, we speak theatre, and we speak theatre to the community. We send live professional theatre to hospitals and institutions. We support the Saturday Theatre for Children program, a wonderful program that introduces not only the magic of theatre to children, but the habit and commitment of going to the theatre at a very early age. They buy tickets and they go to a live professional performance on Saturday mornings in their own school. And this, we believe, will enable the theater to have a, an audience that will come to it not because there is a hit show and not because it is a birthday or an anniversary, but because they have been educated to go to the theater and it is an important part of their lives. So this is an important part of the WINGS program. This, uh, the seminars working in the theater, comes out of the wing school, and it's a question of sharing. It's it's the problem, the problems, and the performances, and everything that goes into working in the theater. We have one on the performance, and today's is on the play script director, possibly the most important part of working in the theater. Because without the words and without the director to make the words come alive, you have no theater. I am Isabel Stevenson, and I am president of the American Theater Wing, and I want to hurriedly turn this over to our co-moderators, Jean Dalrymple, who is author, producer, and about everything else that you can say about someone that works in the theater, <laughs> and also a member of the board of the American Theater Wing, and George White, who is president of the O'Neill Foundation and also is a director and I think works at Yale occasionally, I've heard. <laughs> and with that, I'm going to turn the seminars over to them so they can introduce our panelists and get on with a very important part of working in the theater. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Isabel. Um, I'd like to uh, begin by introducing the panel on my right, and uh, by also perhaps prefacing this by saying that uh, we are certainly, by dealing with playwrights, dealing with the people who have taken on for their life's work, possibly the most difficult, uh, certainly the most difficult literary, if you will, art form, uh, and possibly the most difficult uh, art form of all. I would 
certainly that might be debated by some sculptors and other people, but I do think that it's a very, very difficult, exciting, and a profession that is fraught with uh, all kinds of problems, which I hope we will deal with effectively today. Um, and the people that have to make this happen on the stage, which is, uh, of course, which are the directors. Uh, on my far right, uh, we have the <coughs> distinguished British director, uh, Mr. Clifford Williams, who is uh, currently represented on Broadway by Pack of Lies. Uh, he has been an associate director with the Royal Shakespeare Company in Britain and has been seen before on Broadway with Sleuth, Soldiers, and Henry IV. He is also chairman of the British Theatre Association. Um, on his left is uh, Faye Kanan. Um, and I must uh, confess that uh, for someone so young to see these credits are mind-boggling. But anyway, uh, that's, that's a personal remark of mine. I was astonished to see see her after all these years. Uh, she is the past president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Scientists, uh, Sciences. Uh, the f uh, her first Broadway play was Goodbye My Fancy uh, and is uh, co-wrote Rashomon and The Gay Life and is currently uh, represented on Broadway with Grind. Um, next to her is uh, also an old friend and I must say one of nature's noblemen who has done a great deal for the theater beyond his marvelous playwriting, which is the sense of giving back uh, to the theater uh, that which he has received, uh, and that is he has teamed up with uh, uh, Robert E. Lee in Inherit the Wind and uh, the night Thoreau uh, spent in jail and is doing a new uh, work, an upcoming play with Norman Cousins called Mesmer, and that is uh, Jerome uh, Lawrence. And then on my left, another one of nature's noblemen, Gene Dahmer. <laughs> and on my far left is an old friend of mine, Bruce Savan, who is one of the best-known theater agents in New York. He represents uh, playwrights, directors, actors, anyone who's creative in the theater. He's done a marvelous job. He's greatly sought after by all of these people. And I've known him since 1954 when he was just beginning, <coughs> very young boy. And he still looks like Faye, very young. <laughs> and uh, next to him is uh, Mr. P.J. Barry, who wrote that lovely play, The Octet Bridge Club, that everybody loved except the critics, <laughs> except one critic, really. <laughs> uh, actually, the Friends of the Theater Collection of the Museum of the City of New York, of which I'm a board member, had uh, 200 seats. And the, at a party afterwards, and they said it was one of the most delightful evenings they ever spent, both play and party. And, uh, uh, and I now have 200 seats, by the way, for Mr. Williams' play coming up, aren't we all? <laughs> and I look forward to, to that being a delightful evening. Uh, and then uh, we have Ellen Fitzhugh, who is the lyricist of Grind. And uh, I hope that you have great success. I have heard all, everything about that. It's been talked about up and down Broadway to a fairly well, and I certainly hope that it goes over with a tremendous bang. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and then, of course, right here is John Going, uh, who was the director of the wonderful revival of Inherit the Wind, 
which was supposed to open on Broadway and is still having its difficulties finding its way, as many, many good plays do today, usually because it is so difficult to raise enough money when you think of a play like Inherit the Wind, which was originally produced for $60,000, now costing close to a million, you can get some idea of how tough it is to bring a good play to New York, but I, I hope you make it. And, uh, and now, I don't know, I think that you should start uh, priming them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fine. Uh, I would like to start by uh, asking, for instance, uh, uh, Mr. Williams, how it all got started for you. Why did you, when did you first have these feelings of wanting to be a director? And a little bit about your uh, background, how you started. At school, how you at were school. At school. Yeah. Um, really, when I was quite young, when I was 15, um, I don't know why. There was nothing in the family or anything like that. I was sort of, thank God, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, uh, I, I ran away from school and took a job as a dresser in a theatre in London, which had just reopened. The, the, um, it was called the Embassy at Swiss Cottage. It's now actually the, the, the home of um, Central School of um, Speech and Drama. So I began as a dresser and worked my way up. So it took a long time. It took a long time. I mean, I really uh, struggled around. I mean, the great thing about, about um, Britain from a a director's point of view, or what was a great thing, and from an actor's point of view as well, was there were so many repertory theatres, I mean regional theatres. I mean the first five years that I was a full-time director, you know, when it was, I'd finally got a job as it were, for the first five years, on the whole I did 50 productions a year. Oh. One a week. <laughs> so I did some well and some badly, but I mean you, you either died or you learnt your job. <laughs> in a sense, that's how you were trained. You didn't, yeah. go, to a you didn't go to RADA or anything. No, and of course there is no training available for directors in, in uh, Britain at all. It's interesting. Nowhere. Why is that? I, I don't know how you train it. them. Uh -huh. I don't know how you train that's them. That's something I, I think we should get back to. Mm. There you Ken, Ken, uh, are they born or made or both? <laughs> um, they're crippled anyway, one way or the other. <laughs> Fair enough. Right, yes, yes. Okay. Um, Faye, uh, again, uh, the same question in, in, for, in another, another way. Um, how did you start and, and uh, were you trained? Well, I, I majored in school in drama and in, in uh, literature, uh, English, and um, I guess I always wrote. Uh, I, I, in those days, you know, the educative process required that you write and that you learn grammar and you learn to punctuate and, uh, and you learned uh, and they encouraged you to uh, have ideas and do compositions, which I very think, far uh, out concept. Uh, uh, yes, it's a little lacking today. And uh, uh, so I always did it. But I was interested in what you said, Mr. Williams, because. Uh, you said you, you went away from home. And the curious thing is I had a desire to both act and to write. And I was an only child, and I lived uh, at home with my parents in Elmira, New York, upstate New York, for a good deal of my early life. And going to, uh, pursuing the acting career meant 
leaving mm. home and leaving my parents. Because to me, if you're going to be an actress, you came to New York and you walked the streets and found out and went to all the manager's offices and did all of that. But I didn't have the guts to leave my parents and make that move to New York. I, I, so I felt, well, writing is safer. I can write at home and I can stay home and I can be a dutiful child. <laughs> <laughs> and so I did the, the, the converse of what you did. Uh, I have no regrets because I've loved being a writer and uh, uh, I'm not so sure I would have loved being an actress or very good at it, but I have loved writing. Hard it is. As Jean said, uh, very difficult, and you, a difficult profession, but a most rewarding one. Thank you. I think uh, uh, another writer should speak now, don't you? Yes. yes. Jerry, <laughs> pick up the torch. Well, <laughs> uh, I've been writing all my life since I could hold a pencil, and I'm, I'm the kind of writer who's unhappy. I, I can't sleep at night unless I've written five pages every day, and I think... Uh, uh, you get into the writing habit. I worked on newspapers for a while, and that means getting to a typewriter and writing something every day. And the highest compliment we ever got was from Herman Shumlin, who uh, said to us when we were working on the first time around on Herald Wind, he said, I admire you guys because you're working stiffs. Now, a working <laughs> stiff is somebody, a newspaper man, who, yes. who writes every day. Mm. And I think uh, uh, you have to have professionalism. I love amateurs. The, the word amateur means to love, like, but uh, to be a professional means you try to work whatever it is, whether it's a letter or a, a note to yourself, to the top of your form, top of your ability, and that's my general philosophy. And I also think, as you so kindly stated, that you should try to spill off what you've learned. We've learned so much from the directors we've worked with, and we've worked with some great ones, like. George Abbott and, and George Roy Hill and, and uh, Herman Shulman and most recently with John Going, who's brilliant director. Uh, you've got to pass it on to the next generation. And we've been trying to do that by teaching. And uh, I just finished a course at the University of Southern California, playwriting, and produced eight brilliant new playwrights. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, everybody says to me, uh, why, why are you uh, uh, creating competition for all of us? <laughs> but believe me, a good playwright is not competition. Uh, uh, the only competition is shoddiness. If a play is terrible uh, and, and you're offended by it, you might as well sit home and be offended by television. So I, I, I think uh, uh, you should welcome every new playwright, every new pro who has a sense of ideal about the theater who works to the top of his form. And that's our general philosophy of theater. You're in the right place. <laughs> Mr. Right Barry, do you right agree with that? share that philosophy. Uh, okay. Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I was just thinking when, uh, when Faye was saying how she began and what she, well, when I, I wanted to be an actor, I wanted to be Gene Kelly. <laughs> and I didn't care about anything else. Uh, we, my father had wanted to go into vaudeville and was, uh, I don't, we were very showbiz oriented, except my father was a sheriff in Rhode Island, very small town in Rhode Island. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's showbiz too. <laughs> Politics are showbiz. But anyway, I, can, I, I really wanted to be an actor, and I've earned my living as an actor and a director mostly until of late. And uh, 
But I do remember it. I must have been 12, and I wrote the Why Mothers Get Gray was the title of the play. And I put it on in the cellar. I played the lead. I directed it. I had all the kids from the neighborhood set up the curtain, got somebody's old movie camera, showed a, a, a I guess it was a Disney cartoon or something, and uh, charged 10 cents. Uh-huh. So that, that was the beginning. I remember just writing then, and um, I remember writing short stories after that, which were about, I was a freshman in high school, were about murdering the whole family, <laughs> <laughs> collecting, collecting the insurance. And I remember my mother was very startled by this, so I thought... <laughs> I would think so. <laughs> I thought, I've got to put this away for a while. You know? um, so I jumped to the beginnings of my writing. I don't know if I answered your, your question or not. But that's how it began. That's how it seeped into my life. And another writer is a writer of lyrics, as we have here with this very lovely young lady. And uh, I wish you'd tell us something, Alan, about writing lyrics. Uh, I wish somebody would tell drama. me something. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think what happened to me somewhere along the way, whatever my large aims were as a writer, um, an, an innate lack of confidence kept telling me that my ambitions for form uh, should get smaller and smaller and smaller. So instead of becoming a playwright or a novelist or even a short story writer because they really they, the they of them out there could look at those things and say, well, what an enormous attempt, and didn't she fall short? Uh, a lot of that sense of insecurity led me to concentrate on a tinier and tinier form of writing until finally I was very content with little syllables and little words and little lines. But the, the trick to this, you see, what happens is that you, you, you find as a lyric writer that you're doing that and you ha you're working within the framework of one of the smallest forms possible, and that's a song, whether it has a beginning and a middle and an end, some sort of arc to it, whatever. You, know, you, you get that down and then you find out when you begin to work in musical theater that it's also required of you as a lyric writer to handle content, character, motivation, and all of the things that are part and parcel of the larger things that you were trying to avoid being caught on. So um, I don't know what to say about lyric writing, except that in the theater it, it really is incumbent on one, especially now, uh, especially since uh, Harold Prince and Stephen Sondheim turned musical theater around, uh, that it was no longer all right just to put a little ditty in every 10 minutes, um, that uh, a lot of what's there has to write on the crest of the lyrics. Uh, and I, I'm very happy doing that, and I'm delighted that I got uh, round to saying something maybe important in a smaller form. How did you come to do the lyrics for Grind? How, how did that happen? Um, Faye had a, a screenplay. Well, well, I mean, she knows better. She, she lived with this story for a long, long time, a very important story to her. Brought it to um, Hal Prince and said, I think this will make a musical. And uh, he believed that it would, too. Started to assemble his team. Faye obviously was going to uh, do the adaptation of the book from her own original property. Larry Grossman, with whom Hal had worked on A Doll's Life, was to do the music. And uh, as they started scouting around for lyric writers, 
um, my name came up and I had a three-week audition period actually <laughs> in which I submitted samples of anything and everything um, and then worked with Larry for a week writing songs and at the end of that time it was sort of agreed by everybody that we would be a team and I am so glad. Yeah, may I pick up on that moment too because I, I was struck by the lyrics and Brian tremendously as well as the book and I, I found that that uh, you really moved everything along uh, and complemented the book beautifully which Thank is you. very very tricky obviously to do uh, when, when you are uh, you have so much to carry in, in a show that is that is so Dense in its in, in, in its in in the not not dense in the bad sense, but there's a lot going on in grind, which is very very exciting, and to be able to move that along lyrically in every sense lyrically, uh, is wonderful. Did you come at that also uh, as a lyricist from poetry? Do you write poetry? I used to think that I did, ah. <laughs> and uh, and actually, what what uh, it was a lyric form because it needed music and uh, so many differences I think everybody knows between poetry and lyrics but if you are writing what you think is poetry but you keep feeling a downbeat you know it's a, that, that might be an indication that uh, that you're a lyric writer and and not a poet but but Faye and I have worked so very closely, closely. for almost two and a half years in in feeding our thoughts in and out from book to lyric and uh, um, hoping for a seamless kind of continuity I'm in sure our work. It yes. yes, it was a very happy collaboration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, the theater is a very collaborative effort, of course, and very difficult to find all the personalities that can collaborate. And I think whenever we have a smash hit, it's because everything, all the people have worked 100% together. It's when there's one bad apple in the barrel that things just get all mixed up and everything goes askew. Isn't that true? I, Especially I think, with a musical. I think the, the real secret of collaboration, and maybe we get a head start because Bob Lee and I have been collaborating yes. for 43 years, but the theater is such a collaborative effort, the work has to be important. Each individual uh, on the team has to get his ego out of the way. There's enough credit if the work is good. Mm -hmm. But so often, one person mm -hmm. of a collaboration stands up on a chair and says, look at me, look how clever I am. So a choreographer can do something totally unrelated to the show. I've even known orchestra conductors who are so pyrotechnic that you don't look at the show. <laughs> and, and everybody has to contribute right. to that total fairy tale. And then when yeah. that happens, the show works. I think. Yes. You have to learn to be a, a selfless collaborator. Mm -hmm. Bruce, when you represent uh, directors, for instance, um, do you uh, enter into it, do you make sure that he can work well with the playwright and that there isn't going to be any conflict there? <laughs> I try. <laughs> it's, I think it's, that's it's so naive, It's naive of me to even think so, but we do try very hard, yes, of course. Especially when uh, a property is brought or we represent a property and we're trying to match it with the playwright. We, we truly try to think of personalities and people's working habits and backgrounds and subject matter, needless to say, and hope to select a, a director that would be suitable to that mm -hmm. situation and hope for the best. Sometimes it does work out wonderfully, sometimes it doesn't, and, uh, and you have problems, as uh, we all know. How did your collaboration on Inherit the Wind come about? I mean, he directed... You want to speak to that? Well, yeah. Go ahead, yeah. 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 
Well, we had a very happy collaboration, which it was a very exciting time for me, I must say. I think I had done a production of the play oh, a few years ago in Cincinnati at the Playhouse in the Park, and Jerry saw it, and we hadn't met. Uh, by the time he saw it, I had left. Uh, I was back in New York. Uh, but he saw it, and I presume he liked it. So when this production came up, he uh, suggested me for it, I think, or at least, uh, I don't know who, where it all started, but I think it was mostly through his uh, having seen my production liked it that that came about. It was really kind of an interesting situation, I must say, because usually when you're working closely with a playwright on a play, it's a new play. And here is a play that uh, has been around for 30 years. It's had tons of productions in, in every country in the world, practically. And Jerry has uh, been with many of the productions and directed many of the productions, so I was a little apprehensive, I must say, about approaching it, and he was with us through the whole thing. But it, it worked out really wonderfully well. I think we both saw the play in the same way. And uh, Jerry was very uh, amazingly free to change this. I was quite afraid that he might think, well, God, he's, he's seen this so many times and sees it just one way. But he was very open to any thoughts that I had or the actors had in creating something maybe not quite like the original production. So I felt very free and very good about it. It was a wonderful production, and Robert Vaughn and E.G. Marshall were yes. amazingly good. There was an interesting new development in it. Uh, uh, Donald Buca, who was a, uh, a famous child actor in the day of the Lunts, played the Reverend Brown. Uh, he has a great shock of gray hair now, and uh, originally Stotts Cotsworth and John Randolph had played various companies of it, and they were rather one-dimensional, as was the, the, the Reverend in, in the movie. But uh, Jack and I, talking about it, uh, uh, decided we were going to make this man into a Jerry Falwell. And <laughs> he, it was amazing because he was all umptious uh, beneficence. And, yeah. and then when he did the hellfire thing, it was t twice as frightening. And that was a whole fresh new approach to it. Yeah. Matter of fact, one woman got up in a seminar we had on a paper mill and said, uh, after the play, said, have you had a letter from Jerry Falwell? <laughs> and I said, no, but this play is a letter to Jerry Falwell. <laughs> you know, I, I'd like to pick up on a little of, of, of what you were saying, Jerry, about this and, and ask the directors on this panel, uh, because it's a continual debate, uh, I think, in the theater today, uh, as to the director's responsibility toward a work which I think is very important. What do they bring? Uh, how do they relate to the playwright? Because uh, there are uh, some directors which uh, will say, oh, to the playwright, particularly on a new work, will you go over and sit over there and leave me alone and let me do my thing? Uh, that's one approach, which I think has been pervasive in this theater for perhaps 20 years at times. And there are other directors who feel a different kind of responsibility to not only the playwright, but to the work, to the script, if you will. And uh, perhaps uh, either of the, well, the directors here would be willing to address that a little bit, the director's theater that we hear about as opposed to the playwright's theater. And what is the responsibility of a director toward a work in your, in your heads? All right. Well, no, go on. Please. please. <laughs> no, America first. I've always felt that the, the playwright is certainly the primary creator. I think the rest of us, directors, actors, designers, whoever, are interpretive artists. 
and that the, the playwright is the prime mover. It's his play that we are trying to discover a way to do. I mean, he's written the ideas, he's written what it's supposed to be. We are to find the physical production and to discover what it is. I mean, often I think it happens that you discover things in it that even the playwright didn't consciously know was there. I think sometimes that happens. But certainly, I think one must always, I've always felt that one must defer to the playwright, that it's his property, it's, he's the original creator, and we are subservient to it. I think that's I, true I, of theater mm -hmm. directors. I'd like you? to go along with that, but I'm not going to go along with it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think it depends. I mean, you know, if you get a play by Harold Pinter, you're not going to get very far if you say, I don't like that particular speech or that particular line, Harold, because he'll say, shove off or something. I mean, he, <laughs> he might accept changing a comma if you were really, really <laughs> adamant about it. So that, that I understand. But, I mean, one just has to quote from one's own experience. Um, and of, I agree entirely that, um, I mean, clearly the, the, uh, the whole thing starts from the playwright. But... In my experience, it's very limited. I mean, the, the, the clutch of writers, living writers, writing new plays, which I've worked with, what I've found interesting in the last 20 years, might have been different perhaps in the 20s or the 30s, that I don't know about, but in the last 20 years, there seems to be, certainly with the European writers that I've worked with, a sort of tendency for them to really write a sort of first draft, or a second draft, or a third draft, and then get netted up with a, with a director. And then the writing work goes through another mm -hmm. phase, and another phase, and another phase. So that everything depends, of course, on, on that partnership, and it, it's understood that one is there to <coughs> turn one's own experience, put one's own experience at, at the service of the play. but. I just have to report that mm -hmm. the stuff I've gone through, there's been an awful lot of rewriting well in advance of rehearsal starting. I mean, since it's a long time ago, it doesn't matter telling the story, but, but Sleuth, which had some success, uh, was written not only by Tony Schaffer, but by... Tony Quayle and Keith Baxter, who played in originally, and myself, who sat around for six weeks in my house in London, and the whole thing got rewritten by, I won't say by committee. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Tony went back and, and did the stuff, but we then churned it over. And I think that sort of um, collaboration, well, that's the sort of one I've known a lot of. Well, <laughs> I, I, I think it's fascinating what both of you have said. I just, from a playwright's point of view, I have worked with many directors in theater and in films and in television films. And first of all, I think it's stupid of any writer who gets something good, something good, some good contribution from any of his or her collaborators, from actors from the director, from, from any source in, during the work who doesn't embrace it. I just think that is dumb uh, uh, because it, the, the work grows in the doing and that's what's wonderful about it. And if you get a, a new point of view and something new, a contribution, and act, something from the actors in some improvisational way or whatever, 
And I think it's also, I think it, when you said about, I don't know Mr. Pinter, but when you said, you know, he trembles if you change a comma, <laughs> that seems to me, oh, I don't want to use the word, but seems arrogant <laughs> to say, I am absolutely, this is it. He has the right to, absolutely. This is it. This is the way I want it. I want every comma that way, and I'm not interested in your contribution. On the other hand, I think as a, as a writer, I have always embraced and been open to that. Um, but if I get ideas that I think are damaging to the work, that destroy in some way its integrity or its concept, then I fight like a tiger. And I will not. I, I, I lose sometimes. I, I win enough times. But I will fight for the integrity of the piece. In, in, in my own mind, but I try to be open. And uh, I just want to say about Hal, working with Hal Prince has been quite remarkable. I, I know Ellen and I have talked about this. He is, and a musical is a, is a whole different ball game because a lot of what the director does is just hold hands of all these various people who are part <laughs> of it and who are, who are secure and insecure and, and frightened and worried and, and, and lost sometimes. And just that business of holding hands is, is such a, taking such energy. But Hal is immensely creative. And for a man who has a very firm touch on the show, he sees it, he knows very much what he wants it to be up there, he is extremely open, is he not, Alan? He, he, he will embrace your ideas. And sometimes when some of us are in, what we'll say, conflict, and that was, in this case, a very happy conflict, oh, but we was. have differing ideas, he says in the end, well, I'm Solomon here. I'm going to, I'm going to take a step. In this case, you're wrong and you're right. <laughs> and we all mull it over. And very often we agree. <laughs> yeah. it, it was the such a highly collaborative process. And really, ultimately, I suppose when it comes down to it, everyone in that tide of collaboration, and really that was for two years of all of us meeting, talking, working, so that it wasn't so much a writer's work first, although Faye's work was obviously first. But the product, process of adapting that to a musical form became, it, it involved all of us as authors, certainly Hal as an author just remarkably, truly, deeply so. And uh, when you've got, and, and, and Larry doing the, the music is as much an author, a contributor. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are four writers for two years on a show. And, and I, I mean, the, the fact that the four of us could come out of that process and still want to see each other the next day, <laughs> I think is a great tribute to that collaborative process. Would you just state what the difference is with the playwright's rights in the theater as opposed to the movies. Since you're on the well, board of the Guild, yeah, why don't since you? Since I'm a member of the Drive of the Guild <laughs> and board. And I will speak for the Writers Guild, uh, although okay. Jerry and I are <laughs> Guild people. Oh. Uh, of course. And the beginning was the word, and the middle was the word, and then the end is the word. And as a member of the Drive of the Guild Council, I must state that, that the author has rights. Now, you can't change anything without the author's permission. But most of the authors are not as stubborn as Mr. Pitter. We talked about professionalism. It seems to me the, the only time it falters is when the director and the writer stops collaborating. Uh, I think the major function of a truly professional producer is keeping the avenue of communication going between the director 
and, and the playwright because so often they stop talking, and that's that's, <laughs> that's chaos. That's death. <laughs> and that's death. And and uh, I think the the director must be the captain of the ship once the play starts sailing into rehearsal. But uh, I made a deal with Jack, as we make a deal with every director. We'll shut up during rehearsal, but I want his ear every night after rehearsal and talk about what happens. And, and he's a great listener, and all our other uh, directors have been. The, the major thing is to keep that collaborative spirit going knowing you both want to do, have the same end result and do the same play. I think one of the most important things in the success of a play or musical is the casting. Do, do you all have something to do with the casting? Absolutely, and the, and the playwright should be very I think important. So. Yes. In, in my book about Paul Muni, uh, called Actor, which Samuel French has just published in paperback. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Paul Muni once asked, uh, uh, John Ford, the director, said, is it true, Mr. Ford, that once you said that a director's job is 90% completed if he casts a play or a movie uh, correctly? He said, no, damn it, I never said that. What I said was a director's job is 95% finished if he casts correctly. <laughs> and I think it's terribly important that the playwright uh, join in the, in the collaborative yes. process of casting, too. I'm a very much a part of that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, uh, I think the casting is very important. I was in on it from, uh, by the way, I'd just like to say Tom Moore directed my play, The Act at Bridge Club, and we got along fine after the initial meeting. <laughs> uh, what happened at the initial meeting? <laughs> <laughs> well, the initial meeting we sat in Sardis with the producer being introduced to one another, and I didn't know him, and, and he didn't know me. And, How did uh, that come about? <laughs> Neither one of you knew each other, and you were cast. Well, I, the the uh, producer had we were you know we were he he wanted us to meet one another because he wanted to, uh, the producer who was Kenneth Weisman wanted to uh, had worked with Tom and wanted us to meet because he thought he was right for the show and I said fine and I know what he directed and so forth okay so we we sat and talked at this lunch and I remember getting very defensive uh, thinking. And I was talking about the play which had been done at, in Louisville at the uh, Humana Festival just the year before, and he was kind of nodding and talking, not responding too much. So I can remember thinking, what the hell's going on here? Why am I so defensive about this play? And um, <laughs> so later, then it was decided by the producer, maybe we should just meet alone so the two of us could talk. And we decided that would be a good idea. So. Uh, about two weeks later, we met in the producer's office, and he left. And we sat down, and I said, boy, was that a pain in the ass, sitting in that <laughs> Sardis and going through that. And he said, yeah, wasn't it? And then we started talking and talking about the play, and we, we hit it off fine. Um, but anyway, going into the casting, the, the, uh, the casting took forever. I mean, it was a long, it seemed to me it took forever. Um, and then there were eight women. So that meant an eight women who were on the stage all the time. So <laughs> it was just, I think the interesting thing about casting was that when the actresses would come in often, it was just a strange thing. They would be contemporary. It's the play was set in 1934 and 1944. And it was just a color sometimes that, that 
Well, yours is in thirty-three, right? Right. And it was, so it's the same yeah. Thing. So there yes. was a there was a color, and it, and you couldn't put your finger on it, and some very fine New York actresses. Uh, but I was in on every uh, on every any any kind of casting that we did, and we and the agreement, which was was terrific, that had to be an agreement between the producer and the director and myself as to who would get it. it got a little little. Uh, tight sometimes, and we'd argue and, and laugh about it. But it was uh, in the final, you know, the final choices. It was the three of us who agreed, and there was no, you know, it had to be the three of us, which was terrific, you know, because this was the first time I'd ever done a Broadway show. I wanted to say when Clifford said about uh, Harold Pinter, I thought, well, Harold Pinter's had a few up there, you know, <laughs> so he can come in and say. I want that comma there. And I want that. <laughs> you know, here I was going in yeah. the first time at bat in a Broadway situation. Yeah. I don't think Harold is at all arrogant, by the way. <laughs> the word is mentioned. I don't think he's arrogant. I just think he knows his job very well. Right. That's and he writes in a particular way. I mean, he's not, he's not a narrative dramatist. I don't know what he is. I mean, he's a poet, really, I suppose. <laughs> um, and I would expect him to treasure his comments. <laughs> I mean, the, the great thing for a director is simply to have the sense to respond to the material in the right way and the response may be no changes I protect that thing to the death or shouldn't you do that it's what and well, all the things in between yeah and the interesting thing that happened with with Tom in this in regard to the writing was you pulled one string with one of these ladies they all had their own voices and you <laughs> changed one line and it would change yeah five pages which was very, you know, which was a lot of, yeah. lot of good give and take. This, yeah. this brings up one, one other uh, thing, which two things. I think we all should be reminded, in a sense, that the directing itself is only about 100 years old. Uh, there was a actor-manager, <coughs> and, and the whole idea of directing something is a fairly, well, relatively new oh, concept yeah. coming out of, of, out of the 19th century. And before that, God knows what happened. I can only think of one quick story, which was told to me by Tony Richardson when he was uh, going to direct uh, Dame Edith Evans in, in The Importance of Being Earnest, which she'd done about 900 times uh, before. He walked in 10 minutes late to rehearsal, and she was wandering all over the stage with a cast, saying, now I move over here, and then I'll go here. And he stopped and said, <coughs> excuse me, uh, uh, Dame Edith, he said, yes. He said, how do you do? I'd like to introduce myself. I am Tony Richardson, the director. And she said, oh, how nice. Well, go sit over there and you'll find something. <laughs> 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 it's lovely. We're going to have to take a break now, and we'll come right back, so please don't go too far away. And also, any questions that you have, you'll find the wing volunteers with wing pins on them. Please hand them to them and come back so we can continue as quickly as possible. Now you get respite. <laughs> we have some American This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. This is the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre. We are continuing this seminar on the play script and director and the importance of the collaboration between the two. We left the seminar at a, a very, very crucial moment when the rights of the playwright was being described by, um, I think it was playwright Jerry Lawrence. 
and we had yet to come to Faye Canaan on how it is in California and movie making, but we will come to that. And I am Isabel Stevenson, the American Theatre Wing's president, and on our, our seminar today is, as always, Jean Dalrymple, who is a member of our board, and new George White, who has joined us, and George White, as most of you know, is president of the O'Neill Foundation. We're going to continue right now on the playwright and the director. Thank you very much for being here, and without another word, we'll go into it. <laughs> okay, I, I'd like to, uh, since we are going to talk about uh, the playwright's rights um, on all levels, both legal and moral, if you will, um, there are a couple of things. First of all, uh, there, uh, a, a person once said that, that, that the theater, being in the theater, is like being in the candle-dipping business when uh, the man down the block has invented the electric light. That's number one. And the other thing is uh, uh, the bad news is good news. Uh, the bad news is uh, one always hears, whether you're an actor or a director or a playwright or, or anything in the theater, that first of all, there is no place for you in the theater. That, okay, we've always heard that. Uh, the good news is you must make your place in the theater, and that's what makes it happen. Um, and that in mind, uh, I would like to ask Bruce, if I may, uh, because you also you deal with, with rights and how you move a, let us say, a new writer uh, into the collaborative process with the director and the producer and, and all of the things that make that happen from the, to create the collaborative team. What goes on? How, how do you put that all together? Because it is a tricky business and you're, you're dealing with that in, in a very, very specific art form, which is the theater, which is the candle dipping business, if you will. Well, I think the, <clears throat> the best thing I can say right at the moment is I just went through an experience that I hope it, at the moment it's 50% successful. I don't know how, what the future will be. Um, I represent, a, uh, uh, there was a screenwriter that was represented by my office, APA, uh, by the name of Ken Friedman. And uh, as usually with, with screenwriters, uh, especially in New York, they, they all have a play, and but they're very shy about the play. And he kept talking about this play, and, and he has someone else in the office that represents his screenwriting interests. And finally I said, you know, I'd like to read the play. Well, he showed me the play, and I loved it. It was a, a, a very funny, out, hysterical farce. Uh, strict, really a theater farce. I mean, it's something that uh, I don't know. I'm not a good judge of whether something will make a good film or not. I work mainly in the theater. But anyway, I thought it was wonderful. Uh, we began to talk about it, and I asked him where he felt that it should have a place, and uh, we began to discuss directors, because I felt that was the next step for this, to see, let a director see it and all. And we discussed directors, and being an agent, I discussed my own clients, and he immediately responded uh, to a client that had directed two farces on Broadway, uh, both of uh, which were written by Terence McNally, The Ritz and Bad Habits, uh, Robert Drivers. Uh, and I said, why don't you show the, the, the script? I'll show the script to Robert and see what he thinks of it. Robert looked, read it and liked it immediately and thought, yes, this indeed was, it was a, a talented play and a play which he would like to direct. Then, of course, the big question is who's going to produce it? Where do we take it? Uh, interestingly enough, Robert Drivers, who was also an actor, was working for Robert Brustein at ART in Boston. Uh, doing a play by Kundera, I believe, uh, the, Czech, the Czech playwright. And uh, Bobby called me and we had a conversation one day and I said to Bobby, why don't you show it to Bob? He's always liked your, 
your uh, talents as a director as well as an actor, and tell him that you happen to have a play. I mean, not every director has a play that he's that enthusiastic about. Well, he did. Bob responded to the play, liked the play, and has given it a place at ART, uh, where we opened a week ago. And uh, we got pretty good notices. Uh, we also got another client of mine being a very good agent. I put Treat Williams in the, one of the leading roles. Uh, who, uh, it's interesting because uh, he, wanted to, he wanted to work in this kind of a working atmosphere, which is really a collaboration when you go out of the city of New York and you're not dependent upon the critics. Uh, and it's not a <coughs> hit or, you know, do or die situation. Uh, and I think we have a very good situation going. It's still running and it's going to, it's just been extended. And I'm in the process now of getting New York producers up to see where we can do it in New York. I mean, my feelings are that it's an off-Broadway play at this point. Uh, it's hysterically funny, but that gives you a little bit of an idea how it works. Now, I just happen to have those people in my office. Uh, I would, you know, I, we, we discussed other directors and certainly other actors, and I presume there will be other actors in the play that I don't represent, but that gives you an idea of how an agent, I, I think I was lucky, and also I was very enthusiastic about the property and I was willing to, to stick my neck out. And Bob Brewstein uh, responded well to, to the uh, material and, and that, that's really what it's about. <coughs> but I will often, with my writers or with a director, I mean, you know, you try to place the person in what you think is the right situation where the collaboration will work. The, this, and it's the subject matter, it's how would they respond. And then you're always surprised. I mean, someone, a director might suddenly turn up to direct something that he's never directed before, I had no idea of, and be just absolutely brilliant with. I mean, which is always wonderful. I think we got away from what you from wanted to know is about <laughs> the difference between the rights of authors in the theater and the rights of authors in films and television. Yes, and, and I think it, it's in New York as well as California. It's just wherever films are being made, or uh, well, you know, in films, you are for the most part an employee. You do work for a studio or you sell your project to a studio or a production entity, as such you yield your rights. The, in the case of the major studios, they become in your contract, in the contract, literally the author of the screenplay the because they owner. hold the copyright. And I remember the first time that I ever saw that. I'm. Well, I don't understand much about contracts, but I, uh, particularly when I was younger, I would read them to see if there was something in there I could understand. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I saw the first time it said MGM is the author of this screenplay. <laughs> I called my agent up and I said, there's been a little mistake in this contract. It says MGM is the author. And he said to me, well, that's just, you know, it's a formality <laughs> because they hold the copyright. But I've been in this art form business for a long time. I will never, ever be happy at seeing that MGM or whoever is the author. It is not a formality. It is a, it is an, a, a reprehensible fact sure. that one, that that, and, and it has been fought in almost every negotiation the Writers Guild has with the producers, they have never yet won this, but one day we will, and we will get, I think, that copyright back. But that is the difference. So that your it's very rights, it's your a very rights flow much differently when you are an employee. In the end, the, the ability you have to control 
the, the quality of your work in films and television films is based on your relationship with the, the producers and the director. And uh, if you have a good one, you have a lot of say and, and, uh, and they respect you. Uh, but if you don't, they out, they overrule you, mm -hmm. and there is very little redress. They really have the ability, because of that, then, on the bottom line, is to fire you off a picture. Indeed. Uh, yes. Even though it's Unless your basic you have idea. negotiated an individual contract which says that they can't, and that's very rare. Mm -hmm. They can fire the director, and I just read recently of, that was a great fuss uh, with a film that Peter Bogdanovich just mm -hmm. directed, yes. and where they take the cut, the final <coughs> edit away mm -hmm. from the director and the studio edit. So in the end, the studio really does control it. Mm -hmm. And if, as a, a lot of writers, because of that, and you will see, you are seeing it more and more in films, have become directors of their own work. Yeah. So that at least they control one more step. Uh, but then there is still the producer and the studio. They, so, is there any way, is there any way, or are there any uh, examples where <coughs> that has gotten around where a writer can be placed in a position contractually where they can protect uh, Yes. Their yes. minimum right. Yes. Uh, uh, William Goldman used to say uh, it's a person who has the clout. Yeah. And on his good films, Paddy Chayefsky had a lot of clout, and they were wonderful films. Not contractual, but because of, of an arrangement. They listened to him. They didn't change anything. On his final film, which was Altered States, I think it killed Paddy because uh, they altered it. They altered Altered States. But, uh, but Tennessee, the, the day will come when writers are no longer involving themselves uh, with the film. Some of them were wonderful, some of them were terrible. And uh, I mean, he used to just kind of sell it and walk away. I mean, and, and I didn't know whether that was his choice or whether. I think uh, it depends on your individual negotiation. As, as uh, Jerry says, very few writers have been able to put into their contract mm. that they cannot be replaced that they cannot, that no one can follow them, anything like that. It just, I'm lucky I have not been replaced in a film. And I don't, I, I don't think it's lucky. I just think that I have made those relationships work. I feel that's as much a part of the writing when I'm mm. in that medium as the writing itself. And that's why Friendly Fire was, for example, <laughs> such a good thing, because the producer and director respected the words. Mm. I think the only one who's gotten away with being the writer, director, producer, and star was Warren Beatty. Yes. Didn't he do the whole thing? And nobody could tell him yeah. anything. Well, obviously Woody Allen. In our and Woody yeah. Allen. Yeah. 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 Right. Sylvester and, Stone. And, and, and yeah. Neil Simon. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty well. Yeah. But, but that's, it's a rare. Stay with the theater. Stay with Broadway. Stay with Broadway. Stay with the theater. Well, but I do, if we are talking to young people, may I, I just say know. something? I think today that anyone who has the opportunity and can to work in all three media should do it because each one of them is a quite remarkable challenge. Uh, the writing and the, the devotion to it and, the, and, your, and learning your craft and doing it is the same in all. Boy, when you're good, you're good in them all. And when you're lousy, you're lousy in them all. But... I do think that for myself, I've worked in all three now, it is very different. The joys of each one are very different. And to rob yourself of that excitement and 
that diversity, if you have an opportunity and you want to, is wrong. I know there's a lot that people say, oh, television, you know, you don't want to bother with that, and you don't, or, or, or theater people say, oh, well, movies, you know, that's, or movie people say, well, the theater, not a great deal of that, because <laughs> almost everyone dreams of working in the theater, but movie people, many people are frightened of it. And, and they shouldn't be. <laughs> now, I think the point that you're making is very well taken. The opportunity to reach the millions of people yes. that you can through either television or movies are enormous, and it requires the very best that you can possibly give them. Absolutely. And so I think I, I, uh, that's and, very important. Yeah. I just think the theater is a happier place. Well, uh, <laughs> I, yeah. Could I say one Please. word? You have to remember the money. I mean, when, well, you, when you go to work for television or the films, you get money on the line. And you don't work two and a half years, as you all did, uh, to get something on Broadway and maybe never get anything back at all. With the new, new dramatist on contract we're going to. Okay. <laughs> that, that, that will do that. But yeah. I'd yeah. like to just toss that around now. What's the difference, what, what did you bring to the recreating of a play? Pack of Lies, for example. You did it in London, you're doing it here. How does it, how does it change? What is your, what happens? And if, if those that have recreated plays here, if you could just talk about that and the direction of that, I, I think it'd be important. I mean, it, it's, it's impossible. I think the most interesting subject this morning, for me at any rate, must be the interreaction between the director and the dramatist. I mean, that's the thing which instantly sparks one off. One starts thinking about that. And all the infinite graduations which exist, um, I remember doing, I mean, for, for one thing, even with living playwrights, quite frequently, one is dealing with a play which is written in a language one doesn't understand and is therefore dealing with the translation. I mean, I don't speak German, so what do I do when I'm, trans when I'm doing Duramat, or Max Frisch for that matter? There your argument then has to be with the translator, which is another world again. Um, I remember getting Ionesco to write two little plays, and I thought, and I speak French, and I thought they were absolutely perfect, and one just did them. I mean, I had no more conversation. One just talked about the, uh, the theme that I wanted him to write about, and there it was. It happened that way. There are many, many ways, and there's Harold with his comma. Hugh Whitemore who wrote um, Pack of Lies, and before that a play called Stevie, which uh, was about an English poet, which Glenda Jackson played in, in London. Um, she was another kettle of fish. I mean, Hugh actually enjoys being knocked down. That's the way he writes. He writes something in order for you to say rotten. He actually <laughs> enjoys working that way, and I'm, you know, it's, it's odd, but it, it's true. And, um, <laughs> Well, he, if, he would certainly say, agree if he were here. I mean, he, he, he's a masochist of the first order, <laughs> and I'm a sadist, so we get on. <laughs> <laughs> well, mate. When, when, uh, when we, I mean, Pack of Lies was very successful in in, uh, in London, and when it came here um, with an entirely new cast, <coughs> Rosemary and Pat and Dana Ivy and George Martin and so on, um, we. Hugh and I said before we came, well, I mean, I mean, what do we think we may have to change? Well, there would be certain words that we've got to change. I mean, changing the word loo to bathroom or whatever you call it in America, <laughs> washroom. Extraordinary <laughs> names for a loo, but anyway. Um, we, you know, we had to make changes of that nature. Um, there were one or two sort of bits of 
suburban reference which we felt would not be, you know, there's no, one could change them, there was no hassle to change them, so we changed them. But otherwise, I mean, we made about half a dozen textual changes up to the day we went into rehearsal. From the day we went into rehearsal with a new company, Hugh was there, and I would say he rewrote substantially a fifth of the play. Yes. Totally rewrote it. Mm. As a result of having a new group of people. Mm -hmm. Very nice. That's Mr. Barry, you did something. You yeah. moved from the uh, Humana Fre yeah. Festival with Arquette Bridge Club to Broadway at, with, with Steps. And what ha how well, did you... Well, well, I don't know if, if you all know the Humana, the Actors Theatre of Louisville, Humana Festival has a play, uh, they do about nine plays every spring, and these are all new playwrights, and it's experience like I'd never been through in my life, it, it really was terrific. I got along very well with the director, who was Robert Spira, and the actresses were, were just terrific. And we worked in a, in a 161-seat theater three-quarters theater. Now, this is eight women on the stage who are on, on the stage most all the time. Uh, the experience is wonderful, and the play went wild, and, and the weekend, there's a big weekend where producers come from London, Israel, New York, everywhere. It, it's, it's, uh, it's probably the playwright, or one, one of the playwright meccas in, this <laughs> in the uh, country now. It's a, it was a great, wonderful experience. So, after that, when things came up and, and uh, producers came and wanted to do the play and we went with Mr. Weisman. Uh We went from a 161-seat theater to a 1,400-seat theater in Baltimore. Well, I was stunned, <laughs> to say the least. We knew what the problem, you know, we knew what the changes would be. And the biggest problem was, is, was the the intimacy, retaining the intimacy of the piece, retaining mainly the love of these sisters for one another with all the controversy that does go on and the things that happen. Uh, it was difficult. I, uh, you said about writing five, you know, the, the uh, rewrites and stuff like that. The first scene of the play, which I think was about 26 minutes, <laughs> I think I rewrote it probably in, uh, before, and when, when Tom and I started working on it, because we knew it would, would expand, uh, I must have rewrote it about eight times to get the same feeling that ha had originally occurred, because the first scene was important in the play, to retain that, that same feeling. So I was really staggered by, by going from this you know, very intimate, where the audience was right there with them, to <coughs> opening it, you know, opening it up and making it uh, you know, larger. Uh, so it was very. I mean, it was very hard for me because I still wanted to re retain the feeling for it. But but Tom and I, as I said, worked worked very well together, and I think I achieved that and and got back to what I wanted. But there was always a danger of it becoming slicker, you know, and not not retaining that feeling of this, of this time period. Mm -hmm. And in other words, you go, well, let's take the laugh instead of worrying about the feeling of these four people at, at that moment. And so it was, uh, it, was, it was very hard work and something I didn't expect. But I, you know, it worked a long time.
there, there is something that, that I'd like to, to touch on here, too. Uh, I, I, obviously, the, the, the business of moving uh, a work from one place to another is, is critical. There's something else that has been, uh, that was alluded to that I think is, is uh, important to touch on, and that is the, and, and is touchy, I, I know, in, in certain cases, is that issue of the playwright directing their own work. And there have been times where the, when the uh, playwright has just, and it, of course we, we know about this and uh, we dealt with it when we were talking about the lack of control one has and the urge that the playwright has to say, I can't stand it anymore, I want to do it myself, I know what I want. Uh, obviously there are pitfalls there. Uh, Jerry, you've certainly done that with Inherit the Wind. Uh, not, would somebody address that? Maybe you could start. Because I think it's an issue that it comes up all the time people wanting to, to control their own work by directing it? It depends on the playwright. I think some playwrights are great directors, some playwrights... I, I think Tennessee Williams would have been a, an awful director. <laughs> but, uh, or Paddy Chayefsky himself. Uh, uh, but I think, uh, on occasion, you should direct. I think you should direct to, sh to, to know how difficult it is. <laughs> but the same token, maybe every, every director should be forced to write a play to know how difficult it is. Talking about changes in here and uh, the same function, I think, and, and it answers the question about the difference between film, I think, the, and, and, and plays, the curse of film and television film are two words, print it, because there it is, for all time you can't change it anymore. And the wonderful thing about a play is you can keep changing it and developing it, not only during rehearsal processes, but through the years. Uh, yeah. Do you remember June Lockhart, who was Jean Lockhart's daughter? Yes. She had always done film all mm -hmm. her life. And she did a, an F. Hugh Herbert play. And uh, Hugh came backstage afterwards, and she was all aglow. And she said, isn't it wonderful? The theater is just like marriage. You get to do it again tomorrow night. <laughs> but the, the fact is, in film, you can't change. When we were sitting watching the rough cut of first, first Monday in October of the film, which we'd also written, uh, Bob Lee turned to me and said, oh, God, I wish we could go backstage and give Walter Matthau some notes. <laughs> but you, there it is. You can't change it anymore. They're a retake. But the, the important thing we've learned, from, especially from George Abbott, is change, always change, develop but make damn sure it's a change for the better, because it's just as easy to make a change for the worse. Yeah, and, and often is made. Uh, I'd just like to address something you talked about earlier, uh, George, about uh, playwrights directing. Uh, I found, for example, working with Jerry, it was very advantageous that he was a director, because he understood the process of directing. I've occasionally worked with playwrights who haven't been around the theater too much, and don't understand uh, uh, too much the director's or the actor's process, and they often become impatient. I mean, they'll come to a rehearsal and the actor isn't quite ready to perform yet, is still discovering, and the playwright uh, on occasion doesn't really understand that it's going to take him two weeks before he's really going to be able to do that speech the way he hears it in his ear. And uh, I found it, for example, in our relationship helpful that he had directed, he knew what the actor's process was, and he wasn't worried that on day two, uh, actress, whoever, was not ready to do it. He knew but that it was I, going I to take I have still a while. said, not with you, with other directors, I can't stand it. <laughs> 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 We're about to open this to questions right now. And um, if the question has already been answered in the seminar, please don't ask it again, so we'll have time for other people to ask questions. 
also try and address it to the person that you would like to have answer your question. And again, make them brief, too, so we have just as many as we can possibly get in our seminar. Thank you. My name is Barbara Helen Baker, and it's addressed perhaps more to the writers, but to the panel also. With so much money riding on productions now, how do you handle the pressure for a name-drawing star versus perhaps someone who you think might actually be better for the role? Oh. <laughs> uh, Isabel, don't you think it's good to ask them to please direct it to a person instead of the panel? Well, we try to, but I think that's something that could be answered by almost anyone, and I think that Bruce, too, should get into that. <laughs> I, I, but I, I, if I had never... <laughs> I found it, it was, it was very difficult in certain circumstances, especially when there were friends involved or actress friends when, I, when we were casting Octet. But I learned one thing. I also understood the economics of Broadway, and when you're doing a play on Broadway, you must try nowadays to do everything you can to draw that public in. And most of the time, there was such a slight difference in... in uh, uh, Say a, a name or a medium name, as opposed to to uh, that. It, well, you know, you, you have a choice, say, of three or four or five actresses sometime, and you do have a that choice. Uh, this was this was a little. I found it difficult sometimes, but I did understand it. Sometimes my head would understand it, and in my gut, I'd say, well, you know. But uh, but there wasn't that much difference. And I, as a playwright, or even it, knowing that this is still show business, I had to, uh, I had to look at it from that standpoint. And I'm old enough to look at it from that Bruce. standpoint. Bruce, will yes, you come uh, into this? Well, I, I think, you know, we naively, perhaps, all of us, I mean, directors, writers, agents. How much influence do you have with the producer? It, it depends. It varies with the producer. And I never think that I have any influence, although, thank God, I'm called and my opinion is asked. And, I, and if I handle a director or if I'm handling a playwright, I certainly have some influence. But I like to think that the best actor, really, is cast with, with the heart and soul of the director and the writer behind it. We all know the economics of Broadway. And we also think that if you have to go with a star to attract, that it'll be the best star, the, the star uh, that is also the best actor for the job. I mean, we, I'd like to think that. There happen to, there happen to be some rather good stars around, yes. aren't there? Why should we take such a sort of miserable view of people? <laughs> Unfortunately, I had to use Claudette Colbert and Rex Harrison. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a star if I can get a good one. Any chance? Is it as important in England? Is a star oh, yes, frightfully important. For the lure, for a theatre Yes, and important, yes, it? unless one's within the sheltered walls of the RSC or the, the, the mm -hmm. National Theatre, which doesn't have stars, on the whole. It's very important, yeah. I just wanted to add one thing, that, that, that uh, when we were casting Architect, the main thing, they really had to be an ensemble, really had to work as an ensemble, which was very important. So there, there are all kinds of actors, but I'm saying it was, it was essential. Thank you. My name is Ernest Goldsmith, and I would like to know how does the playwright director handle his directing background when he writes so that it doesn't intrude upon the play, and how is it beneficial? To whom are you addressing this? I need to hear from someone who's primarily a, a playwright and someone who's primarily a director. Uh, that would be yeah. Jerry and... Uh, Jerry. Jerry. 
Right? Well, I, I, I uh, uh, find most playwrights over direct uh, in directions, but, and, and nobody, and people rarely read them. <laughs> My partner always says, if, if you commit murder and you're impelled to confess it, stick it in the stage direction, nobody will ever read it. <laughs> <laughs> but certain directions are terribly important. Uh, I, I think our most eloquent line in Inherit the Witness is the final thing that's a direction where he balances the books, the Bible and uh, Darwin and slaps them together. But we've seen a couple of productions, one in Turkey, where the, the director left that out because he had crossed out all directions because he didn't want the playwright to intrude on his creative process. Well, that was destructive. So you have to be somewhat of a director at the typewriter. And uh, I hope that answers your question. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Kevin Moulton. Uh, in Boston recently, there was a production of Samuel Beckett's Endgame. And he was very specific in the script about what he wanted for a set. He just wanted a void. And the director chose to use a subway set. So Beckett tried to stop the production. I can't really direct this to anyone in particular, but I just wanted to know how you felt about what the writer's uh, rights were there and the director's rights. Can I say something about that one? Yeah. You all want to say something about that one, maybe. <laughs> I mean, when you were talking about the AFT earlier, um, and. Uh, Bob's sort of upcoming production of one of your plans plays reminded me of, of that little uh, scandal, if that's what it was. Yes. Who was the lady who directed the play? Jo uh, Joanne Ackleider. You all know more about it than I do. Jo anyway, it is, it is interesting that you can protect your script, perhaps, well, if no. not in Hollywood, but there are still other ways you can be got at. Though I, un I understand that, that, <laughs> the, that what, um, I mean, that the particular design for that show was actually spellbinding, was terrific, and... Um, I don't think uh, Sam actually saw the show, did he? I don't no, he didn't. He didn't. No, no, no. Uh, but there's a general feeling that actually he might have been delighted if he had seen it. After all, <laughs> after all, because it seemed that the it wasn't just a fly-by-night crazy sort of uh, production no. gimmick, the scenic approach. It was actually deeply analytical, deeply thought out, and deeply right for that play today. Now, it's understandable that he might. You know, react rather violently, but then again, he might not have if he's seen it. So it's a very difficult one to talk about. And I didn't see the show. Did anyone see that particular I show? I read most of the notices, and of course, they were very, they defended the director's right that because the, of the production was so successful and so good. But evidently, he had heard about it and voiced all of these objections and wanted it stopped, and, uh, and he was voted down. Mm. And then the production proceeded, and it was very successful, but it's certainly an interesting situation. I don't think that had most likely ever come up. How could he be voted down now? How, how does that, where does that infringe on it, what you were talking about, the oh, playwrights' I think it had rights. gone so far. I mean, it wasn't like, uh, can we do your production with the following uh, uh, scenic scheme? I it was this, this uh, he had found out about it, uh, and no one, I guess, thought that he would object to a different kind of scenic uh, design. And by the time he, that the production was all practically, and I think it was already in previews or in certainly final dress rehearsal. The dramatist skill went to his defense, however. There, there yes, is an interesting theory really, that, I, that right, I'd like right. to bring up here, which is which I'm just leaving in for a second. There is there's a word that that has been alluded to but not said in this whole business here, which is trust, and it's the mutual trust here, here. that that goes in the collaborative process. They mentioned it with and when relationships there, when there is a film producer. Exactly, you know. trust. Sorry, trust. that's that's. Right. Does that answer? Uh, thank, thank you. you. Hello, my name is William Vitali. For the past seven years, I've been artistic director of a small off-off-Broadway theater company. And like so many 
recently, we have recently uh, lost our space uh, in a daycare center. It has been converted into condominia. And I think uh, no one has a, I have a, a two-part question. Uh, I think the major thing wrong with the theater today, at least Broadway, are the theater prices. Uh, my first question is to Ms. Kanan, who was very brave and gave up some of her royalties on grind in order to keep the show running. Um, is this what will happen now? Will creative people have to uh, knuckle under in order to have $50 seats? Um, are we going to have to give up um, our royalties in order for rich people to be able to go to the theater and be the only ones to go? I think that trust that word comes in again. Everybody is going to be able to, should be able to work together to make it available to the theater audience uh, to buy tickets to come. I don't think it's knuckling under. I think when these things happen, it happens by a collaboration between everyone wanting to have the piece made as available to as made it, uh, available to as many people as possible. I don't think that's knuckling under you. Well, I think that it's a very complex question now because I do think that Broadway is facing some very serious economic problems. Uh, I think ticket prices are outrageous. I think it has indeed uh, priced out of the theater audience a whole wonderful audience that enjoyed theater, that came to it out of a real love of it, that understood it, uh, that had a vested interest in coming to theater and went to plays across the board and encouraged a diversity in the content of plays and musicals. And that big, expensive, you know, 47.50 ticket or 45 or whatever it is has really made for that genre of theater go. It's like a once a year thing that they save up for. And I think that is a shame and reprehensible. I think that the, the, the reason is the cost of putting shows on on Broadway. And that's something that all Everybody who loves Broadway has got to address, I think, and address a lot right now. I think all the guilds and unions must. I think stars must. I think right, every, all of us who love it must because <coughs> it, is, it is lovely to make money and we all want to be rewarded for our work. And certainly in the theater, you make the biggest investment because you don't get paid as an employee. But I think most, I, I hate to say it, but most people who work in the theater work a great deal out of love. And uh, I find really more than almost any other place because that initial investment is so big. And I think that we all have to find a way. I don't know how, but we must all find Hopefully, a way to we'll get be, it back. Hopefully we where might be able to find some of that way when we talk with the production team of Grind, which is our next seminar, and um, hopefully they will explain to us why the ticket price is so much and what everyone's role in, in the producing of Grind will be. And I hope you'll be able to be here, and so that will be answered to you too. Can may you, may I, I, I have a second part of, uh, well, of the question? You, uh, uh, Mr. Williams' show, uh, Pack of Lies, has the last second row uh, of the uh, mezzanine for $12 seats. I think Lacage is the only one that has that. Has this been successful? 
I don't know. I, I would say probably no, because I don't <laughs> think it's around enough. It's not out enough. I mean, it, it does seem to me also, I think there are all sorts of reasons why tickets cost $40 here and, and uh, uh, $15 in London, all sorts of reasons. One of them is that approximately, I mean, we get, we get half the income in, in uh, I mean, people earn half as much there. I mean, everything's down by half, so it's not comparable. But it is interesting that even if you, even if you doubled the London price and made it, then it would be $30. It's still 25% cheaper than here. So there are all sorts of interesting points. I think probably something to do with the value of the land, which goes into the building, which goes into the land, oh. which goes, and up and up it, it escalates. Um, but it has to be said that it does sometimes seem daft that if you can sell 500 seats a night at $40, it would perhaps be preferable to sell 1,000 at 20. I mean, because you've got more Bums on seats, as they say, and that would seem to me to be that that would seem to be to be desirable. I suppose I don't Did know. Did you say bums or bums? <laughs> <laughs> We're into translation, and that's right. <laughs> uh, no, something has got to be done about it, and and uh, and it's getting the news around. I suppose the booth is working fantastically in its own way, but I I think it needs. I think the whole thing needs de debating at the highest level. I totally agree with it. The highest level. I don't level. know whether you can ever go back, but certainly we ought to be able to do something about stopping it the way it is now. Do you know, can I say one more thing about that? Because it's nothing to do with New York, and it's nothing to do with anything, except in Glasgow, one of the finest theatres in the whole of Britain for years and years and years called the Citizens Theatre, in the middle of this awful city called Glasgow, which is sort of ruins all over the place, and Scotch voices and whiskey, um, puts on, puts on, of wonderful plays, wonderful plays, um, and they, they're so adventurous they will do anything, and particularly new theatre, terrifically new. Well, they had big financial problems and so forth, but one day they said to hell with it. I mean, we're always on our knees, we've never got enough money, what's the point of overcharging the box office? And they decided from that day that the price of a ticket in Glasgow to any seat in the house would be whatever the current price of a packet of cigarettes was. They go on losing money, but they're full. <laughs> they absolutely fall from that day, day. And I mean, it's a popular audience in the way that we always dream of a popular yeah. audience. When we say we're fed up with middle class, bourgeoisie, etc., etc., they've actually got a popular audience. Oh, I'm not <laughs> suggesting you can go on no. Broadway, but uh, <laughs> 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 our cigarettes are going up. <laughs> but we try to fill seats through our, our, our student ticket program. And what we do is we beg producers, and they're, they're rather cooperative with us, too, to give us as many tickets as they possibly can because it's important for young people and for our volunteers to see as much good theater and, and finished theater as possible. And uh, we fill those seats, we put bottoms on the seats and, and it works both ways. The, the performers have something live out there and the, our students and our volunteers are able to see theater and that's very important but uh, that's, that's, that's not enough. We have to, we have to do more than that. Would you? My, na <clears throat> my name is Peter Gary, and my question I want to address to Mr. Savan. I have written a musical. I've been around for a long, long time. Uh, I'm known in the carnival world as the king of the talkers, but I'm, I'm <laughs> for some reason, I have a little fright here. But uh, <laughs> uh, I've written a musical comedy based uh, on my life. As a kid, I was brought up with tent repertory shows. I've worked with the Lunts in New York. I worked with Noel Coward and set to music, The Lunts and The Pirate. I've had a, a terrific career, uh, both on the stage and a fairly good one out Could in California. I want to ask, but in other words, I'm, I'm not a, an amateur. Now, how in the world do I get representation? My first uh, 
audition was for David Merrick at his ex-wife's apartment of the musical. He loved it. Now, Mr. Savan, how can one come to your office? Is there any office that you can go where you don't have to slip it under the door or whatever? The answer to that really is no, and it's, it's not a case of, of, we all know, we as agents have to put some kind of governor or limit on the amount of scripts that we can accept from unknown sources. Uh, someone asked me that during the intermission. Uh, we like to say unsolicited, and it's merely a governor. We know, yeah. I know myself, that those things, there are many things that I don't read or not able to read that are talented and worthwhile, but you just can't. You have to have some kind of a contact. I always say to an actor starting rounds who has no contact, at this point in your life you have to be aggressive. You have to walk in and you have to get a reading. I must see something. I, as an agent judging talent, as an agent judging new playwrights, uh, or, or in your case a musical. There are sources, there are places. Ralph I work. I was going to say, I go to, I'm on a panel at ASCAP, I'm on a panel at BMI, and I listen to new composers uh, do a, 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 some kind of representative of their work. They've written a play, they've done, used a dummy play, or they've written an original source. So there are places, at least, that we have new dramatists, uh, they do readings all the time. I go to a place called Theater Works, where new musicals are done. You just must find those places, and that's the time then to ask an agent I'm or a representative. Sorry, but we have room for just one more question, and, All right. and then you can talk some more. All right, I will. <laughs> Thank you very much. My name is Judith Calder. I wanted to come back to uh, your discussion about training, or you started to talk about training. Uh, I think the best way to learn directing is with anything else is by doing it. But without a rep system in this country, I wonder if the panel could talk about how they think training should take place for actors, or, uh, directors rather, or uh, conversely, if you were asked to design a training program for directors, what do you think it should include? Well, uh, I think it's, it's important to start with it that a director have a good liberal education because you have to deal with just about every aspect of life as a, as a playwright does. So I think um, before you get to learn how to block a scene and all that stuff, you have to, you have to really inform yourself with uh, all aspects of uh, life, really, and uh, particularly of literature, because a director needs to, to really have a strong background in dramatic literature, all kinds of literature. So I think a, liber a good liberal education is, is important. I would agree with you that it's very difficult to get started as a director. Uh, I'm not sure I have any answers to that. I mean, as I think Tyrone Guthrie used to say, the way to learn to direct is to get a group of people who are stupid enough to let you direct them and <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> Jack, but don't, don't you think also that I think they must work intimately with the theatrical process in whatever area, of course, if it can be Broadway, off-Broadway, regional theater. And they, when I say work intimately, hopefully they, they may have ambitions to be actors or they're good enough so they can get a job. Acting, stage managing, all of those chores, I mean, bring the, the person, the, 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 in, the director or hopeful director into direct contact with the process and that's, that's what it's about. I mean, many stage managers turn directors, many writers, you know, it, it, all, it all happens. Uh, well, that there's, some one, there's, there's some wonderful intern programs in the regional theaters across the country now mm -hmm. for young people where you can really uh, get to watch the grown-ups do it and to uh, be very involved in the process, not just watch. And I think you're very right, Bruce, you need to work your way up. I, I, would, I would also say the old way uh, in the American theater, uh, I still think is valid. And that was and, and is to some degree now, is starts with the stage manager, being a stage manager. Because a stage manager has to perforce work 
very closely with the existing director. It's the best way to do it. It was the old way, and it's still the best way. If you can get yourself a stage manager, assistant stage manager, that's the ticket, I think, because yes. it involves internship Thank and everything you. else. Quite right. Thank you. I'm, I'm sorry, and once more, here I am interrupting, and, and, and I just feel terrible about doing it, but there's just not enough time and, and for all of the wisdom that we hear on the platform and the American Theatre Wing's program on working in the theatre. When we say American Theatre Wing, most people think of the Tony Awards, but uh, that's not the whole thing. The American Theatre Wing created the Tony Award in order to reward the achievement of excellence in the theatre. Not for the longest, not for the hit show, but that which was excellent, and it continues so today. The Wing, which created this program, also has a year-round program, and perhaps that's the most important thing that I can say to you. Our hospital program, in which live professional theater is sent to hospitals for shut-ins for those people who can't come to the theater. And our Saturday Theater for Children program, which is sponsored by the Wing, and it's just that, bringing professional theater to people, young people in the schools. And these seminars which take place, which are, I think, wonderful. They're, they're they, the, the very best that the talent, the very best talent that is in the theater today comes and contributes their time and their energies to the American Theatre Wing. And today's seminar on the playwright and the play script and the director is one of the most wonderful and exciting panels that I've ever listened to, and I just wish that we could go on and on and on. But I have to say thank you very much, and thank the City University, the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, for giving us, the American Theatre Wing, the opportunity to present these seminars here on 42nd Street. Thank you very much.